Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Is suicide wrong? Profoundly, morally wrong? Almost always wrong, but excusable in a few cases. Sometimes morally permissible. Imprudent, but not wrong. Is it sick? A matter of mental illness. Is it a private matter or a largely social one? Could it sometimes be right or a noble duty or even a fundamental human right? Whether it's called suicide or not, what role may a person play in the end of his or her own life? We're going to be talking on the program today with Margaret Batten, who's Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Medical Ethics at University of Utah. She's author, co-author, edited, co-edited some 20 books, including two collections of essays on end-of-life issues, The Least Worst Death and Ending Life, and now her comprehensive historical source book, The Ethics of Suicide Historical Sources, is being published in a shorter uh, paper version by Oxford University Press and in the expanded full version. Uh, it'll be online at the Marriott Library, at, uh, or at least hosted at the Marriott Library at University of Utah. And there will be an event coming up presenting the book. It's on Monday, October 5th, noon to 2 p.m. in the J. Willard Marriott Library, Gould Auditorium Level 1 at University of Utah. Margaret Batten, a uh, pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and even to talk about a really challenging issue. Yeah, very challenging. Yeah, um, it, maybe we could begin there. I was as I was, you know, reading, uh, you know, parts of the of the book. There's there's a lot here. I talk about this unique publishing uh, event as well. Um, it, it's it's a troubling issue. Uh, it's a contentious issue, and in fact, you have a, I don't know, you could call it a disclaimer here in your introduction. Some of the material in this collection may prove disturbing, you say. For help with thoughts of suicide or impulses to harm oneself, contact American Association of Suicidology or the uh, International Association for Suicide uh, Prevention. So, you know, and I think this is an, uh, an idea, a worry that we have, even talking about suicide could, you know, perhaps uh, put an idea in someone's head. Right. So I think it's useful to provide the crisis, the National Crisis Line uh, phone number, 800-273-TALK. That's 8255. So 800-273-8255. And that's an assistance line, a helpline for people who have, um, are troubled by thoughts of suicide. Mm -hmm. We have to acknowledge that this is a serious issue and often a tragedy. But I think we also have to um, begin to recognize that there are um, deep ethical issues here uh, that we need to think about. And this goes beyond, uh, um, maybe this is a good starting point uh, for this part of the discussion. You say in your introduction that uh, there, you know, there has been a vigorous discussion, a debate about the ethics of suicide. And your earliest source here is from from Egypt, so you know, right. eighteen hundred uh, BC. You go up to current times, but but now, in at least in America, the debate was kind of frozen by by scientists like Freud or by psychologists like Freud. Right, I think began to be interpreted as a, an issue of psychopathology or social um, forces. And so the ethical issues um, were essentially put off the table uh, with something that we could treat, prevent, uh, or at least calculate. But that's different from thinking through what the reasons for ending one's life might be. 
and whether there were any good reasons. So if you look <clears throat> excuse me, back through the history of thinking about suicide, you see an enormous variety in the way the great thinkers of the past and more recent present have conceptualized this issue and, and whether they thought it was ever permissible uh, or not. So what you see is that our current thinking about what we call suicide is actually rather monolithic. We, we don't have access to this deep current of really thoughtful reflection. So what's, what, what's, what's your purpose in this uh, source book? It's quite extensive. Uh, I, I think, one, you stated explicitly you want to you get the debate or the discussion unfrozen, at least in the, in the West. What's, what's the purpose? Well, there are several purposes. One is um, that notion of suicide is attended with a considerable amount of stigma, uh, and that it suggests that, that the reasons for which uh, this is done um, are unimportant. It's simply wrong. In earlier times, it was counted as a sin, and in some traditions still is, or as a crime, right? Uh, and currently is always a problem of mental illness. Uh, and all of those things tend to be uh, stigmatizing. But we forget that there are circumstances in which we might respect a person's um, choice. They might not be very frequent, but they're still important for us to think about. Uh, and also, there are current social issues for which the issue about the role one may play in the end of one's own life are really important. Probably the most salient current one is the issue of physician aid in dying, uh, framed in this country as um, applying in, just in cases of terminal illness, whether a person may seek help from one's physician in an easier death or whether that should not be permitted uh, at all. So those are the kinds of issues. There are many other contemporary issues as well, but yeah, that's a start. Uh, and by the way, um, the uh, Utah's Death with Dignity Act, uh, House Bill 391, I believe was uh, tabled for further study in the last uh, legislative session. That's when we had you uh, first on, on Access Utah. I want to talk a little right. bit about that. I, I found it interesting, by the way, and we'll get to this uh, maybe a little later on, but uh, you put in, it's the second to last uh, you know item in the book, uh, you put in uh, an essay against physician-assisted suicide, which I found interesting. Well, there is one against, and so this, this book tries to be as neutral about these issues as possible. So mm -hmm. there are ringing um, celebrations of suicide, Nietzsche, for instance, or uh, these Stoics. There are fierce denunciations of suicide, as in the um, uh, early American Christian divines, um, and everything in between. And this, this book tries to be completely neutral about it. Mm -hmm. So there is a piece that opposes physician-assisted suicide uh, by Dan Callahan, Right before that, there's something called Apologia for Suicide by an English writer in which there is a ringing, really extraordinary um, defense of suicide in the same kinds of uh, conditions. So what you try to do is look at both sides of 
or all the sides of uh, this issue. Mm-hmm. And th- this this issue is so so loaded. And I I don't know. I I, I wonder if you would you mind talking a bit about your personal experience? Uh, again, we've I, I talk about. It, it, let me talk about it in just a second. But first, okay. to say something about how constricted our thinking is about um, suicide. So part of the problem, as I see it, is that our language um, controls to some extent what what we think we're thinking about. So if we say suicide, we think about things like the, um, oh, I don't know, to use the stereotypical cases, the um, lovesick teenager who slits her wrist because her boyfriend jilted her. Or to continue with stereotyped cases, the middle-aged businessman who's in financial trouble and um, puts a gun to his head. Um, Cases like that are stereotypical examples of suicide. But if we are thinking about the cases in which a person knowingly, uh, deliberately, takes means to end his or her own life, we leave out many other cases that we don't label suicide because we don't disapprove of them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. consider, for instance, here are more stereotypical examples. The soldier who um, falls on the grenade in order to save his buddy. Now, he does that knowingly. He does it on purpose. He knows what the consequences will be. But we would never call him a suicide. We call him a hero. Yeah. Or the pilot of the jet plane, the failing jet plane, who sees that if he bails out, the plane will crash into a crowded schoolyard. This is a, an old example. Uh, so instead of bailing out, he stays with the plane and crashes it into a, an empty field. Again, we would never call this person a suicide. We would call him, again, a hero. So we label the things that we disapprove of, suicide, and don't label that, give that label to cases we do approve of. And that the yeah, language does matter in this, yeah. You, uh, yeah. So you, we have suicide, self-sacrifice, martyrdom, right. a- aid in dying, um, Right. Self-deliverance, a lot of different terms, and, right. and they right. carry different weight. Yeah, and and that gives us a sense of the complexity of this issue. Yeah, is mm-hmm. Samson a suicide? He pulls the temple down on himself as well as the Philistines, and he says, "Let me die." That that's the way this story mm-hmm. is um, transmitted to us, but we we still would not call him a suicide. And you write in your in your in your book, uh, John Donne. Uh, asserted that Jesus Christ's sacrifice, we, we use the word sacrifice, he, he called it suicide. Right. Uh, it's worth noting that he didn't publish this book, Beathanatos, during his lifetime. Uh-huh. It was that controversial, and he, he knew that. But his view was that suicide was licit, if done for the glory of God, and that um, that's in fact what Jesus did. He could have prevented the conviction. He could have prevented the crucifixion. He willingly, according to Dunn, emitted his last breath, uh, and in that sense was the author of his own death. 
but because he did it for the glory of God, um, it was a suicide that was permissible. Mm-hmm. You uh, can see how controversial this uh, is. Yes, I was just I was just thinking that uh, there's I I could see why he didn't publish that, and and even today, <laughs> even today that would be controversial to use that word right. in, in that context. Right. Yeah, right. But there there are many celebrated cases in which a person has been the author the the physical. Um, cause of their own death. Take Socrates, for instance. He drinks the hemlock that the uh, Athenian court provides for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he will. Well, I don't know if willingly, but he does. He does of his own volition do that. Yes, he, he does it willingly, and he he had every opportunity of evading that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's uh, let's take a break. When we come back, um, I will get an email which has come in from uh, Kylie. And by the way, you're welcome to join this conversation. Hope that you will. Perhaps you have a personal story. Uh, you'd like to weigh in on these uh, these weighty issues of suicide. The book is The Ethics of Suicide, uh, and it's uh, being published in a unique way. There's a paper version, the traditional version, published by Oxford University Press. It's a shorter version. And then the full version is, is being hosted at the Marriott Library at the University of Utah. Uh, digital version. And there's an event um, celebrating this and uh, launching it. That'll be Monday, October 5th, noon to 2, uh, at the J. Willard Marriott Library Gould Auditorium Level 1. We're talking with Margaret Batten, who's Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Medical Ethics at the University of Utah. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic. Practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial plastic and reconstructive surgery, and offering hearing aid services with audiologist Dr. Spencer Tejan. 753-7880. Some of us love it. Oh, yes, indeed. Some of us hate it. It gets more vicious still. But most of us don't have a choice. Hour after hour, day after day. So why do we work? We work for identity and fulfillment and a sense of connection. I think you can find nobility in what you do. I'm Guy Raz. Why we work next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Today at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking about the troubling topic, very weighty topic of suicide. And this is from the introduction to the book, Is Suicide Wrong? Profoundly Morally Wrong? Almost always wrong, but excusable in a few cases. Sometimes morally permissible. Imprudent, but not wrong. Is it sick? A matter of mental illness. Is it a private matter or largely social one? There's some of the issues that are grappled with. The writer is featured in The Ethics of Suicide, Historical Sources, And it's a new book out in uh, the traditional paper version, shorter version, by Oxford University Press. The full version is hosted at the uh, Marriott Library uh, online at the uh, uh, University of Utah. And there will be an event uh, launching the book. It's uh, Monday, October 5th, noon to 2 p.m. at the J. Willard Marriott Library, Gould Auditorium, Level 1. We're talking with Margaret Batten, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Medical Ethics at the University of Utah. She has uh, edited this new book, Ethics of Suicide, Historical uh, Sources. And uh, we'd love to have you weigh in on this. We'd love to have your, your thoughts, your uh, feelings. The number, toll-free phone number is one 800 826 1495 
1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. So here is uh, Kylie Miller in Moab, and uh, she answers the the question here presented uh, from the book. Uh, it is our right. It isn't unethical or immoral. If someone wants to end their life, then that is their choice. Dying is just the next step in the journey of this one life we have. That's uh, Kylie in the Moab, so thanks for emailing in. Uh, Dr. Batten, what, what do you think about uh, Kylie's statement there? Well, it's, um, there's several things that are obvious about Kylie's uh, comment, and thank you, Kylie, for making it, because it certainly represents one strand of thinking in the history of uh, thought about suicide. What's central is, at least what I hear in your comment, is the notion that this life is a stage um, after which comes a further life. Um, it That's, of course, open to questions, a matter of religious faith um, and different in different traditions. Uh, it has been central in the thinking of many uh, parties to this discussion. Uh, and it was so central in early Christianity that there were debates, there were um, essentially problems in the early church among ardently believing uh, early Christians who reasoned in the following way. Look, the way to a beatific afterlife is to be without sin. The body is the locus of sin, and so what I must do is repent, confess, be absolved, and get rid of the body as soon as possible uh, before I sin again. And that's the way to the afterlife. Right? Now, that reasoning had obvious, uh, and it is claimed that among, a, a, this is a North African group called the Circumcellions, that um, groups, large groups, and sometimes numbered in the thousands, it is claimed, it's hard to um, corroborate these claims, committed suicide in order to get to the afterlife. Now, so early, the early Christian thinkers, the uh, slightly later Christian thinkers, especially Augustine, held that suicide was a greater sin than any sin that could be prevented by it, and essentially put a stop to that kind of reasoning that is, the, uh, the um, urgency of getting to this uh, wonderful afterlife. Now, I know, Kylie, that that's not all in your comment, but the, the point is that the, one's conception of what an afterlife is and what its relationship to how one's current life ends has been central in lots and lots of this thinking. Uh, this book, incidentally, contains material from Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, um, Confucius, Islam, all of which have these other major religious traditions also all have things to say about the relationship of um, a suicide ending this life and what one's uh, access to an afterlife might be. So your question is extremely rich and interesting. And indeed, uh, not a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah. That's, these are uh, getting to, to Kylie's uh, beliefs, and it does get to belief, doesn't it? Uh, 
Um, Belief is a huge element of yeah. this issue. I, I want to read this uh, paragraph uh, from the introduction. Uh, this is Margaret Batten. Even in the seemingly most isolated cases, the act of suicide is necessarily connected with background views about the meaning of death, the value of life, the relationship between the individual and the community, the nature of suffering, the significance of punishment, the existence of an afterlife, the nature uh, of the self, and many other deep philosophical questions. The issue of suicide challenges all of these. As Camus is so often quoted, there is but one truly philosophical question, and that is the issue of suicide. That's probably the most frequent um, thing said in this, in this general issue, that quotation from Camus. Famous passage. And I guess he was getting to what you we alluded to previous to that in the paragraph, right? That this 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 right. gets suicide gets to the center of of so right. many beliefs and assumptions that we have. And of course, that's not the way we typically think about it um, in our current age. We think of it as a, a medical problem, uh, most frequently associated with depression, which indeed often is the case. Uh, but that it's a preventable and treatable. Um, problem, and that our public incentives ought to be to reduce the number of suicides, um, in fact, to zero if we can do so. We're concerned about, for instance, high rates of suicide among veterans or among uh, older men in particular, among youth. Um, But we don't stop to think about the larger issues. Now, I support suicide prevention in general. That seems to me to be important, um, and that there are many, many cases of what we call suicide that are, well, just tragedies. But our thinking shouldn't end there. There's a much wider range of issues that um, is also relevant. Here's a, this is an article sent to me by my producer, Jess, um, and th- this, is, this is old, it's from 1983, but it illustrates how this, is, this issue is bound up in culture and society. Uh, so the headline is, and this is from the New York Times, uh, Micronesia's male suicide rate defies solution. And the, I'll just read a couple of paragraphs. In the islands of Micronesia, young men are, are killing themselves at one of the highest rates in the world, researchers say. No one knows what to do about it. I have no idea what happened, you know, since 1983. But they go on to say, uh, scrolling down here, um, when we began to take a closer look at things, one of the researchers said, we noticed a pattern of poor family relations. Rather than an impulsive act, we found that suicides, at least in this island of uh, Truk, uh, were often the result of long-term intolerable situation. Young island men have used withdrawal, such as silence or refusing to eat, to express anger or shame, and then their theory is that this is this cultural... I guess habit has has now been taken by some of these young men to an, an extreme, but I, I thought that was an interesting example of how it's bound up in in culture. Yeah, well, that's certainly the case. There have been cultures in which suicide um, <clears throat> ha- has become a fashion or become a norm. So there's an example from the uh, Greek um, island of Miletus. This is uh, narrated by. Um, um, an early uh, Greek historian, I think it's Plutarch, um, where the young women of... Uh, it, there was essentially a fad for suicide, right? They uh, hung themselves, and um, this, this became 
a vogue, as it were, and it was put an end to by order, an order from the um, governors of the island that the bodies of the dead girls be displayed naked in the marketplace. That put an instant stop uh, to this um, practice. It suggests that killing oneself may be a matter of fad or fashion that is not uh, not a not a reflective, thoughtful, uh, principle-based choice, um, as it might be in other conditions. Uh, and that's certainly something that we that we see. We sometimes see uh, what's the um, um, uh, sort of little vogues for suicide after the suicide of a famous oh, actor or public figure of some sort. Um, and those are phenomena that we see from time to time. But those things tend to distract us from the um, circumstances in which um, deeper reflection is appropriate. So how, how should we... A way of thinking about this is to think about the kinds of social issues in which these deeper issues are most relevant. And if I have time, I could just read you a little list of them. Yes. Well, the obvious one, um, physician-assisted suicide, it's called often, largely by detractors in terminal illness, or hunger strikes and suicides of social protest. Um, we've seen many of those um, in Turkey, Northern Ireland, wartime Vietnam, Tibet under Chinese rule, the Middle East, and so on. Or self-sacrifice and martyrdom. And the difference between impermissible suicide and martyrdom and self-sacrifice, that line is drawn differently in different religious cultures, but it's always a challenge. Yeah. Or uh, religious and ritual practices that lead to death. For instance, mm. sati or salakana in uh, traditional Jain practice. Or suicides of honor or loyalty. Um, in many traditional cultures, the king's retainers and wives went with him uh, when he died voluntarily. Um, suicide bombings and related forms of self-destruction like jihad or um, other military or guerrilla tactics. And all of those are different, um, but they all have this same issue um, underneath them. So it's very complex. It, it is. Yeah. I was just thinking, uh, you, you talked about, uh, you know, martyrs, uh, people who uh, mm -hmm. would, would kill themselves for a cause, and, and uh, thought about the fruit vendor who in right. Tunisia, right. who uh, self-immolated. That set off, uh, you know, many times these things happen, it doesn't touch off something, but that touched off the Arab Spring, and I right. think many would view that self-sacrifice in a positive light right. for, for what happened afterward. Well, that's to take a, a sort of consequentialist, a long-term view of it. it you could um, cast this either way. Well, it touched off the Arab Spring, and that was a positive thing. Or it touched off the entire convulsion of the Middle East uh, that we're currently seeing, and that's, uh, that's uh, much more troubling. It's hard to know what one's actions will be. But there are, there are suicides, and it's hard to know whether the fruit vendor 
foresaw any of this or was simply expressing his um, his outrage. Uh, a more telling example, I think, of suicide of social protest is um, Smul Ziegelboim. Ziegelboim is his, was his name. He's um, the leader of the Polish um, government in exile um, who killed himself in um, London. This is during the Second World War to protest the fact that the Allies had convened, the English and American governments had met in 1943 to discuss the situation of the Jews in Nazi-occupied Europe, but they didn't do anything. And he says, this is his suicide note from 1943, I cannot continue to live and to be silent while the remnants of Polish Jewry whose representative I am, are being murdered. My comrades in the Warsaw Ghetto fell with arms in their hands in the last heroic battle. I was not permitted to fall like them, together with them, but I belong with them to their mass grave. By my death, I wish to give expression to my most profound protest against the inaction in which the world watches and permits the destruction of the Jewish people. So this is as poignant a suicide of social protest as we can imagine. He did this essentially on the steps of the British Parliament. Hmm. To say you cannot not respond to an act. Now, is, is that a suicide that we disapprove of or that we view with the greatest admiration? That's the kind of issue that there is here. Mm -hmm. Most suicides are not like that. At least most of what we call suicides are not like that. But we have to remember that some may well be. I want to, uh, we'll just set the scene again. We're talking with uh, Dr. Margaret Batten, uh, who is uh, the University of uh, Utah. Um, she is a uh, distinguished professor of philosophy and medical ethics, and uh, her book is a, a collection of uh, writings on the ethics of suicide. The title is The Ethics of Suicide Historical Sources, and that's uh, going to be presented, uh, launched at an event at the J. Willard Marriott Library Gould Auditorium Level 2 on Monday, October 5th, noon to 2 p.m. Uh, it's an interesting publishing event. It's being published in the paper version, shorter version, by Oxford University Press. So I understand it, QR codes, which will link you over, and uh, and then you or you could go to the fuller version, which is being hosted online by the Marriott Library. Right. Um, and the shorter version is not so short; it's seven hundred. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> short, short in quotations. Yeah, that's that's true. Right. Um, but what's interesting about the way the print version and the online digital version? Because often we make choices between uh, using a digital version of something or a um, print paper version. This permits. What's novel about this is that it permits you to go from the paper version by means of these QR codes that are um, at chapter level in the text to the online archive. Then you can comment, suggest new um, texts, or um, submit corrections. But also you can search this enormously complex 700-page um, volume of texts and come back to reading it in paper, which, of course, is often more comfortable. 
So this... it, it, there's a facility here that neither digital alone nor paper alone ordinarily um, provides. This could be where, where we're going with publishing. Yeah, it, and it's, it's new for this press, Oxford, and it's new for this academic library uh, at, the, at Utah. And as far as we can tell, it's new generally. Mm-hmm. Let's take another break when we come back more with Margaret Batten, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Medical Ethics, University of Utah. The book we're talking about is Ethics of Suicide, Historical Sources. It uh, takes all the way from uh, ancient Egypt up to the, the present day. Uh, many issues are, um, are covered, including uh, physician-assisted suicide. I want to talk about that and Margaret Batten's personal story. I want to talk, I want to read, uh, I was interested in reading some letters from kamikaze pilots. Uh, and we'll get into that as well. Um, more following the break. This is State of the Arts. Every home should have a work of original art, according to Alice Merrill Horn, an early Utah legislator who ran for office in 1898 on a platform of advancing the arts. Representative Horn wrote legislation that organized the nation's first state arts council, established a statewide art competition, and appropriated state funds for a collection of work by Utah artists that continues to this day. She encouraged schoolchildren from around the state to contribute nickels and dimes from their milk money to buy art for public places such as schools and libraries. That early investment has paid off. Utah is now home to more than 9,000 professional artists, and Utah's art galleries are a $159 million industry. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, welcoming students and alumni back to campus for Homecoming Week, September 28th through October 3rd. Information at usu.edu slash alumni. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the loaded um, topic of suicide today. And we're uh, asking some questions. These are a series of questions that uh, Margaret Batten uh, has other writers address in, in this uh, collection, The Ethics of Suicide Historical Sources. Uh, is, uh, is suicide sometimes morally permissible? Is it imprudent but not wrong? Is it sick, a matter of mental illness? Is it a private matter or largely social one? We talk a lot about physician-assisted suicide. Uh, and, of course, there's uh, you know suicide of young people, suicide of med- military veterans. There are many uh, ethical issues associated with suicide. We're, we're talking about just some of those in the program today. The book we've been talking about is uh, being published in a unique way. The uh, regular paper version is, uh, quote-unquote, the shorter version. Uh, it's being published by Oxford University Press, and the full version is online, and that's hosted by the Marriott Library at uh, University of Utah. Um, and there's an event launching this book. It's Monday, October 5th, noon to 2 p.m. in the J. Willard Marriott Library, the Gould Auditorium, Level 1. Margaret Batten is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Medical Ethics at University of Utah. Uh, you can join this conversation. Hope that you will. Love to know what you think. 1-800-826-1495 is the phone number, toll-free, anywhere you're listening. 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. Here's an email from Tim. 
Tim says, I'm only catching the last portion of your show, but I was wondering if you've already discussed suicide and its connection to the lack of hope. Thanks for this great discussion. Thanks for that, Tim. Uh, what about that, Dr. Batten? Connection to well, lack of hope. Lack of, lack of hope. Lack of hope cuts in two ways, too. We, we were just talking about afterlife expectations. And it, at least in the early periods, and this, you see this in a number of different religious cultures, it's a hope of a, a better afterlife that sometimes precipitates or invites um, the ending of this current life in eagerness to get to a better afterlife. So that, that kind of hope is indeed paradoxical. I think Tim, though, is probably referring to lack of hope about current circumstances, and that might be um, distressing personal uh, circumstances, financial, they might be financial, sorry, financial, they might be relational, uh, they might have to do with illness, um, and since we uh, might as well talk about terminal illness or illness where hope of survival becomes less realistic, um, the issue of an earlier, easier, or self-enacted um, <clears throat> death becomes more real. Is that lack of hope? Well, it's often construed that way by opponents, right? Um, it's often promoted that way by proponents of assisted dying. Uh, but how we understand lack of hope is a much more complex question. Is this what we ordinarily medically label depression, right? being unable to see outside a certain narrow range of negative possibilities? Or is it a realistic response to genuinely bad circumstances that cannot be changed in any um, acceptable way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hope, you're, cut, you're, hope cuts many ways. Cuts many ways as, as many facets or many sub areas of this discussion. It's it, it's more complex than we sometimes think of it. Yes. I, I wonder. I'm, if, I'm sorry we don't have hours to, to go. Yes, <laughs> yes this, definitely. Because it's so um, so complex and so interesting a topic. And yet I come I come back to and I think we we often think I think a lot of people would think this. Uh, say you take suicide of a young person, and and Tim's point about hope. And you think if they just could have, you know, uh, someone could have gotten to them, they could have called Suicide Prevention Hotline or whatever, and got through this, you know, narrow place in their life, and they could have seen a, a brighter vista of hope, and, and maybe they could have lived a long life. I think that right. we, we go there a lot, you know, and that's certainly a certainly important part of this as yeah. well. We, and, and that's certainly right. We do hope that. And we tend to think that when someone is younger... Um, and otherwise healthy. This is to leave out the situation of people who are young but also terminally ill, uh, an area of consideration we, we don't think about very often, that if they just get through the current crisis, they can go on to live a longer uh, and fruitful life. Mm-hmm. You don't see those possibilities when you're squeezed in the grip of a terrible circumstance. But it would be helpful to give the... Um, Suicide Helpline yes, number again, definitely. 800-273-8255, that's 273-TALK. Uh, 
And I wonder, you're discussing this, you know, making sure we understand that these issues are more complex than we sometimes think of them. Um, uh, you know, I, I could hear some saying that, uh, you know, just as we discussed in the beginning of the program, opening this discussion up and even presenting some uh, areas where suicide or, you know, end-of-life issues, ending one's own life could, could be a positive, not a negative, could be, could be dangerous for some. Well, ta- there's, there's a, a myth afoot, and this is often um, said with re- re- relative to people who appear, appear to be suicidal or in the grip of depression, that talking about suicide will cause it or invite it to happen. Uh, there isn't any evidence that that actually occurs, and that often asking someone directly uh, or raising the issue of this, whether this is what they're thinking about uh, can actually help to defuse a situation in, in which uh, that's, the, that's the risk. Yeah. So that's, that's also about stigma, about our fear of, uh, suicide and fear of, uh, so to speak, triggering it, uh, that leads us to keep it out of sight and under the table and still cloaked in stigma. Yeah. And that's that's part of the problem. I want to get to uh, some end-of-life issues, and I, I hope you don't mind me framing this in a personal way with you. Uh, oh, it, that's you're, you know, you've, you've told your story, but some may not have not have heard it. Uh, you've You've studied end-of-life issues. So part of what you've studied in in your career, but then this became, uh, you know, very personal with your yes. with your husband. Yeah, my husband, uh, Brooke Hopkins, an English professor, was a wonderfully um, outdoors, athletic, vigorous man who went on a bicycle ride one afternoon in City Creek Canyon here in Salt Lake, and as he was going downhill on his bicycle. Uphill was coming, a bike racer, doing sprints, and they collided. The other guy wasn't hurt, but Brooke, as I've recounted publicly, broke his neck. He was rendered quadriplegic, could not move anything below his shoulders, um, and on a ventilator and with many other um, life-prolonging um, technologies. Now he's Fleur. He was glad to be rescued by the flight nurse who just happened to be jogging in the canyon, who um, later said, I'd always wondered if I did the right thing, right, knowing that he would be fully uh, paralyzed for the rest of his life. And he, he was glad to be rescued and really flourished despite enormous pain and, of course, total limitation. Uh, But then as physical things began to go downhill and he could no longer teach, he elected, and this was a decision that he made over the course of a year at least, to have his ventilator discontinue, uh, and that would mean dying. Now, so the question here is, was that a suicide? It certainly wasn't a suicide from any legal standpoint. Any patient has the right in this country to discontinue any uh, medical treatment uh, that they wish for any reason. 
And some religious traditions, for instance, Catholicism or the LDS faith, do not require the continuation of medical treatment that is regarded as burdensome. Right? So from both a legal and moral, and also in this case with respect to a couple of different religious traditions, religious point of view, to have one's life-sustaining treatment discontinue and thus die is not an offense, right? And not regarded by in any of these ways as suicide. Just the same, it has some of the same elements. In this case, it involved much deeper reflection and over a period of uh, at least a year about whether to continue to live in this circumstance or to die. It certainly involved reflection about the impact on other people. It involved, he was an English professor, so he's familiar with, of course, all the great works in which issues about death and dying and you know, personal reflection are also central. So he's extremely well versed in the areas of deeper reflection. Is that a suicide? Is it not a suicide? Mm. What we label such a thing makes makes a considerable difference. Um, finally, it's worth remembering that in our modern medical world, the it is said the vast proportion of contemporary deaths involves decisions to die or to let death occur. So we issue do not resuscitate orders or we withhold or withdraw treatment. Um, sometimes we um, use terminal sedation when pain management is very difficult. Um, people sometimes choose to forego eating and drinking uh, or eating uh, but not hydration and so die. Uh, and in some states, states, four of them, it is uh, legal for a physician to provide um, a lethal drug to um, to a patient who requests it um, as a, as an easier way of dying. These are typically people with cancer. So all of those choices go on now, and they all involve decisions about earlier uh, and essentially elective dying. Hmm. We don't call them suicides. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we should call them suicides. Right. And again, we go back to the definition. The words we use carry carry great weight. Right. Uh, I just want to, uh, I, I promised listeners I would get this in just so we have just a couple of minutes left. I just want to read this paragraph. You have this in the, in the book. Uh, this is a, this is a kamikaze pilot who, uh, you know, killed himself and uh, seesawed in defense of his nation. This is Hayashi Tadao, uh, born in Tokyo in 1922. Just this paragraph. This is from June 2nd, 1944. I feel that I have to accept the fate of my generation to fight in the war and die. I call it fate since we have to go to the battlefield to die without being able to express our opinions, criticize, and argue pros and cons of the issues, and behave with principles, that is, after being deprived of my own agency. To die in the war, to die at the demand of the nation, I have no intention whatsoever to praise it. It is a great tragedy. 
that I think is uh, that was valuable to me. I, you know, you see the movies and you you have the stereotype of these pilots to actually read something. And there's a full range of views among these pilots. That was valuable to me, and I guess that gets us back to uh, it's it's valuable to read all of these different viewpoints on on suicide. Right, and certainly of the kamikaze pilots, there's there is considerable um, discussion of the degree to which they were compelled to do this or to the degree to which they did it voluntarily considered it a privilege to be selected. Um, uh, there uh, And there's a great deal of um, current scholarship that tries to look more closely at the ideology under which they did it. So the, what you, the paragraph you cite here, he says, couple of days later, um, I don't avoid the sacrifice. I don't refuse the sacrifice of myself. Right? Um, the degree to which social conditions and social forces, in, including in this case the um, uh, uh, naval attack force uh, uh, commanders, control or frame or shape choices about how we die. Mm. Those happen in every context. They happen in medicine. They happen in general society. They happen in um, a great many other contexts that shape our thinking about the role we may play in our own deaths. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but uh, very interesting. Much more reading, of course, that readers can do. The book is The Ethics of Suicide, Historical Sources, and it's being published in paper version, a shorter version by Oxford University Press. The full version will be online in digital version, uh, hosted by the Marriott Library at the University of Utah. There's an event launching the book. That's Monday, October 5th, noon to 2, J. Willard Marriott Library, Gould Auditorium, Level 1. We've been talking with Margaret Batten, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Medical Ethics at University of Utah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. A window in the last ice age in the present-day desert outside of Las Vegas brings a missing link into the national park system. And along with it comes a small but enticing possibility that fossilized human remains are buried next to those of ancient bison, camels, and even lions. Today, this landscape appears barren, a nearly 23,000-acre slice of tortured badlands, constantly undergoing change as the elements push and tear at it. But held within it is a trove of prehistory. Vince Santucci is a senior geologist and paleontologist for the National Park Service, who's acting as the monument's first superintendent. He says, Thule Spring brings to the park system a unit dedicated to preserving and interpreting a park for Ice Age, or Pleistocene, paleontology. The term Ice Age is synonymous with the Pleistocene, he explains. The Pleistocene ended approximately 10,000 to 11,000 years before present. To the non-scientists, this is often referred to as the end of the last Ice Age. Back then, Santucci says, the paleoclimate in southern Nevada during late Pleistocene would have supported a lush and verdant wetland. Thule Springs long has been overseen by the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, but it was designated a national monument under Park Service Management by Congress back in December. What makes Thule Springs so interesting largely are the fossil records that have been deciphered so far. Those records point to long extinct camelops, American lions that weighed half a ton, dire wolves, saber-toothed cats, and horses that would be described as miniatures today. There were bison that were ancient relatives of those that graze in Yellowstone National Park today, mammoths and ground sloths. 
fossil remains from a period ranging from 200,000 years ago to 7,000 years ago are among the paleontological stories to be coaxed out of the ground. What might have so far gone unnoticed is the tantalizing aspect of Thule Springs. While past geological research in Thule Springs has led to a general consensus that humans did not coexist with the fauna detailed in the fossil record at Thule Springs, Santucci doesn't entirely rule it out. He says, the arrival of humans on the landscape came near the end of the Pleistocene, and that the fossil remains that have been uncovered are from creatures very close in form to today's fauna. During the Ice Ages, says Vansucci, the arrival of humans in contact with these ancient organisms helped to shape the configuration and the composition of what survived the end of the Pleistocene and what now has come to represent the modern fauna and flora of the United States. For Wild About Utah, this is Patrick Cohn with National Parks Traveler. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University.